Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. We find ourselves this morning and working through this passage, this book, uh, in chapter 8. And we will begin in verse 22 this morning. That's Luke 8, verse 22. You'll find that on page 865 in the Pew Bible in front of you. It's a wonderful story, one that's very familiar to you, I trust. And yet, uh, great encouragement to our hearts. And so may God help us to hear it um, this morning, that we wouldn't just hear it through the lens, perhaps, of our familiarity with it, but it be new and fresh and very compelling in our lives as we gaze upon the power of our Lord. And so Luke chapter 8, verse 22, hear now the Word of God. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased. And there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now that we can set our hearts upon, and we pray that you would come through your Spirit, and you would draw us to you, that we would find this truth powerful, compelling. Father, even as I've been praying this week, I know there are many who are in the middle of great trouble and trial today and bring hardship and difficulty even into this room. They are heavy laden. They are burdened. And we ask for them in particular this morning that Your Word would be a great encouragement to them that they are never alone if they are in Christ. Let us all delight to be in Christ today as we gaze upon His majesty, we pray in His name. Amen. So on June 8, 1958, when the Edmund Fitzgerald slid into Lake Superior for the first time in front of thousands, Measuring 729 feet in length, she became the largest carrier on the Great Lakes. She was sailing for 17 years, and on November 10th, 1975, in the middle of one of the worst storms that hit Lake Superior, she found herself in trouble. Some recall how the sustained winds of 80 miles per hour in the rigging sounded like, quote, dozens of air raid sirens all going at once. Others recall the 30-foot high waves that pounded the ship like a, quote, a hundred wrecking balls banging on her steel hull. After 7 p.m., as night fell grew, the Fitzgerald's long hull bent and then bent some more and then snapped in two like a broken bone. Her two pieces hesitating for about 10 seconds and then quickly beginning their 500-foot descent into the darkness below. One moment, 
She was plowing through 30-foot waves, waves as high as three-story buildings. The next moment, she was gone. Learning what many have learned before, that large lakes have dangerous waves. Unlike an ocean, waves on lakes are often contradictory. They're unrhythmic. Uh, and, and moreover, around waves, the surrounding terrain often makes them subject to quick temperature change and violent weather. Another lake that experienced this, as you know, is the Sea of Galilee, measuring 13 miles long and 5 miles wide, is frequently hit, even to this day, by such storms. The Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, lies 700 feet below sea level, and yet it is surrounded by mountains, Mount Hermon reaching 9,200 feet high. And so it's not unusual for cold air to rush down from these peaks, down that 10,000 foot drop, colliding with the warm weather above the lake, resulting in an instantaneous and violent storm which have over the thousands of years taken many a sailor's life. It's on this lake and in the midst of such storm that we see Jesus sailing, or perhaps better understood, Jesus sleeping when a storm hits. The point of this story, I think, is recorded in verse 25 as we'll work our way to that point. Uh, who then is this, they ask. This seems to be where Luke is driving us and for why he included this story. He wants to leave us with that question, I think. He wants to put that question in our heart. Who then is this? Who is this one that we've been watching, this Jesus, this miracle worker, this teacher? Who is He and how can He do the things that He does? In fact, it's interesting if you put all of Luke 8 together, you remember the last two weeks we've been considering Jesus' teaching on hearing the Word of God. And He has said that, listen, if you're going to hear rightly, it's going to change you. You're going to bear fruit or your light's going to shine or you're going to begin to do what I tell you to do. Those who hear rightly obey. And now in the second half of Luke 8, we actually have three wonderful occasions of what it looks like to not only hear the Word of God, but to obey it. The first one to obey will be the storm. In the coming weeks, we'll consider that a legion of demons will obey Him and even finally death itself. I think the point here that we see is that though Jesus is human, which you clearly see in this passage, That He is God in the flesh and He is worthy of our trust. In fact, that's how I'll outline this passage for us this morning. Three simple observations. First of all, we notice the humanity of Jesus. Secondly, the trustworthiness of Jesus. And finally, the divinity of Jesus. And even as I began this morning, my hope is for us is, is that we'll have a renewed vision of the glory of Jesus. His majesty will be exalted in our hearts and we'll leave here with a greater understanding and appreciation and trust in His greatness. That we'll leave here perhaps even overwhelmed thinking that I belong to this one. I am His and He is mine. I've been praying additionally this week that some might even be for the first time introduced to the eminence of Jesus. His power, His majesty that your heart may be won by Him. And so but we need to look at the text, but before we do, I just want to, if I can, just put a, a footnote in, in this sermon. And, and I, I, the reason I do so, because people will read this passage, and, and especially in, in kind of skeptical Western society, they will, they'll read that and say, well, that's an interesting story, but it clearly didn't happen. It's a myth. It's a legend. 
Right? And we shouldn't take it literally. There's some spiritual meaning that we should glean, but certainly we shouldn't understand that this is history. And I, I think this is how the Western skeptic deals with Christianity. They, they say, we don't know what Jesus is like. All we know is what the church wants us to think Jesus is like. All we have is the church got together and they, they wrote these stories in order to persuade us that Jesus is like this and like this. And if, if that's the case, if, If this is legend, the question I would ask for us is why do we see all these details in this story? In fact, this story is recorded three times, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you put all three of the stories together, you have all these details. For instance, we know this story, this event took place in evening. We know that there were other boats that accompanied Jesus on, out into the sea. We know that Jesus slept in the stern. We know that he put his head on a cushion. Why, if you're writing a legend, do you include the fact that there are other boats? Right? That doesn't add anything to the story. It's just mentioned and then never mentioned again. Why do you include where he rested his head? Why all the details? I will, I'll tell you why the details. is because these are memories. People are recounting uh, this event from their memories. But I know some people will say, well, Stephen, you add these details here to make it seem realistic. Right? You add the details to make it seem believable. And I would suggest to you, that's what we do now, clearly. But that's not what they did then. In fact, we now have a genre of literature called fiction or, or the novel, and it's written realistically, right? We have all these details, and it makes us think that this actually happened, and we're given details that aren't even pertinent to the story. But the problem is, is that the novel was developed 200 years ago, not 2,000. And that prior to 200 years ago, we have no legend that's ever written like we see here in the Gospel accounts. There's not a single historical example of realistic, modernistic fiction like we see here. It couldn't be legend. In fact, C.S. Lewis, I know I've probably shared this quote with you, but C.S. Lewis, an expert in ancient literature, once said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literatures, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they look like. I know none of them are like the Gospels. Of the Gospels, there are only two possible views. Either this is actual reporting, or else some unknown ancient writer without un- with without known predecessor or successor, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative 2,000 years before it happened. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. And I, I, I like the condescending part at the end. He's a professor after all, right? Uh, you see what he's saying? It, it, it's not, it can't be legend. We never had, and we don't have any example of a legend that has details like this before Luke or after Luke. It is a historical impossibility that this was written as a myth. You may not believe that it happened, but you cannot deny that they did. They believe they are telling the truth that this happened. You may wonder, well, why does it matter if it happened? Well, if the point of the story is that, that we may trust in Christ, that He proves Himself faithful to us, even in incredible circumstances. It has to be true. This is why it's so important for it to be actually happen if it's actually going to produce in us the faith that He wants to draw out. In fact, we begin by seeing His humanity. Notice, first of all, Jesus' humanity. Verse 22 says, One day He got into a boat with His disciples and He said to them, Let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. 
So Jesus is ministering up near Lake Galilee. He's on the western side of the lake in what we call Galilee. And, and he, gets, he says, you know, I have an idea. Let's travel from the west side to the east side to the less populated side. I, I, we're not told why, but I, I, would, I think the text helps us uh, realize why. And I think it's probably because Jesus is exhausted. He's tired. And he is ministering day after day, and he is walking from town to town, and he is walking for days. And we have already seen in our study of Luke's Gospel, often he climbs up on hills just to try to get alone, though that's often elusive. People usually find him quickly. We know crowds are following him. Hundreds, thousands uh, are following him. Many are hurt and sick and tired. He's casting out demons. We'll be told in, in Luke 8 later on that when he heals, he feels drained. Power leaves him, right? And I, I I, I believe he's exhausted. I, I get tired taking care of my seven kids, right? And they don't even have demons. And so, I mean, he's just constantly pouring himself out. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's answering questions. He's constantly on guard to those who are trying to trap him in riddles. He's doing all this in 100 degree weather and humidity. There is no hotel to retire to. There is no tour bus to climb onto. It is hard to find water, shelter, and food. And I believe he's simply exhausted. I get exhausted after preaching for 50 minutes in an air-conditioned room after sleeping in a nice bed. I can't imagine what Jesus is giving, how much of Himself He is giving. He's exhausted. I think that's why verse 23 immediately tells us, And as they sailed, He fell asleep. Uh, It's almost as if He says, I I know what we should do. Let's get in a boat so I can just get some rest. I need some sleep. And so He boards a boat. It's 10 feet wide, 30 feet long. And they begin to sail across this lake five miles wide. And this tranquil scene, as they move slowly across the lake, guided by the stars in the evening, suddenly changes. As we read on in verse 23, And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and they were in danger. Luke tells us it was a, literally a hurricane of wind. The seamen, I think, call this a squall. A sudden violent gust of wind followed by heavy rain. Matthew's account tells us it came without warning. He will call it a seismos, where we get the word earthquake. Literally, the idea that the lake is just shaking upon them. And suddenly, this, this little vessel is rising up on these massive waves and falling down the backside. Luke here tells us that the boat was filling up with water. They were in danger of being swamped. They were in danger of going down. And as all the disciples screamed and panicked, Jesus slept. Again, Mark tells us he's in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. We know that these boats would have a little seat in the back, usually reserved for women or other guests. And there'd be a small leather cushion there. It seems as soon as Jesus got in the boat, he headed back for that bench, and he found that cushion, and he curled up on on the side there, put his head down, and he is out. And as the storm crashes on the boat, Jesus slumbers away. Despite the howling wind and the wet spray, it seems to me that his sleep is as remarkable as the storm itself. I would suggest to you this is a display of the humanity of our Lord. He is fully human. 
He has the limitations that you and I have. He got hungry when he fasted. He is at times thirsty. Other times he will be angry. He will cry. He will even die. And here he slept. The only time in Scripture you will hear that our Lord slept as his humanity is on display. You may ask, well, how can you sleep through a storm like this? Many have suggested, in fact, I read a number of commentaries on this passage. Many suggested, well, he's just trusting in his Father after all. He knows how he's going to die, and so he has nothing to worry about. And so he sleeps away knowing that his end is not near. And uh, perhaps there's some truth in that. In fact, I, I would imagine there, there must be. But I would suggest to you that maybe the answer is more simple. Maybe he's just really, really tired. Maybe he's living on the edge of exhaustion. And the one time he just lays down, his body forces sleep upon him as he slumbers away. Our Lord is fully human, just like you and I, except for one thing, sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That Christ would live on this earth in perfect obedience to His Father, accumulating a record of righteousness and godliness, that He might give that record to you and I. He who knew, knew no sin would then take all my wickedness and all my rebellion and all my sin upon himself when he would go to the cross. Luther called this the double exchange. I receive his righteousness. He receives my sin. He was like us in every way except he had no sin. He has come to save us. He has come to redeem us. In fact, you'll note in verse 24 that the, the apostles on this boat soon will cry out to him, We are perishing. And they are. In fact, I think they speak more than they realize. Of course, they're referring to the boat going down. But they are perishing into a greater degree. They are perishing spiritually. They are perishing without Christ eternally. They are perishing under God's judgment. They are perishing. And they even, by the way, call out to the right one, don't they? He is the only one on that planet that can actually save them from their spiritual doom, save them from spiritual perishment, spiritual judgment. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, perhaps you're here to learn more about what Christians believe. Christians believe fundamentally that all humanity is perishing. Every single one of us, we are all perishing. I would tell you based upon the authority of God's Word this morning that you too are perishing. That God is a holy and just God. He is good and right. And because He is so, He will judge all sin. He will not sweep it under the rug. He will not wink at it. He will not say it's no problem. He will judge it and every sin will be judged. Your sin and my sin. But He is more than a just God and a holy God. He is a merciful God. He is a loving God. And He has sent His Son into this world to save sinners like you and like me. He has come to save the perishing. That is why He's here. But you must call out to Him. You must cry out to Christ. I'm perishing. Save me. I believe you're the Son of God who died upon the cross for my sins. I believe you rose triumphantly from the grave. And now I call out to you, save me. Christians, this is our message, is it not? 
We have a perishing world. And there is only one man who can save them. It is Christ the Lord. We must take that message wherever we go by how we live and what we proclaim. We are the only ones with hope. It is Christ who has come to save the perishing. May we live out that mission that God has given us. One of the great opportunities I think that I'm looking forward to is in two weeks, Pastor Glenn is going to begin a workshop during the Sunday school hour to to equip us in personal witnessing that we might live for Christ and spread these words. You can see information in your bulletin. I would encourage you to perhaps consider and pray about joining us that we might be better equipped to bring this message to this world. But we not only see Jesus' humanity here, we see His trustworthiness here. Secondly, note Jesus' trustworthiness there in verse 24. It says, And they went and woke Him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. You you could tell the emotion there. Master, Master, they call out to Him. I trust they were doing everything that they could to save their lives. They were bailing water and taking in the sail and lightening the load. All the while, Jesus is sleeping. I imagine they appreciate how hard he works and how much he must be drained, but it seems to them now is not the time to snooze or soon we'll be sleeping with the fishes. And so they go to Jesus and they wake him. You notice what he does, reading on in verse 24. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. He doesn't wake up and grab a bucket. He doesn't help with the sail. He simply speaks to the storm. Luke tells us he rebuked it. Almost, almost like you might rebuke a dog or something. Bad storm. Right? Right? I'm sleeping here. Right? But Mark actually tells us what he said. He said, be quiet. Quiet, be still. It, it, literally, if, if you, a, a very wooden translation would be, be quiet and stay quiet. It's almost how you talk to a child. Sit down and don't move. Is what you might say to a kid. That's what Jesus says to a hurricane. Of course, it's one thing to say it, right? It's another thing for it to obey. But read on in verse 24 with me as we see, And they ceased, and there was calm. And so the, the, the disciples in their massive confusion and panic uh, wake up Jesus and He's fully composed and He speaks to the storm and it just flees Him, flees from Him. And it's just not the storm that stops. I mean, that could be coincidence, right? The storm could start, it could stop. But you notice it's just not that the, the, the storm ceased, but read on at the very end of verse 24, it says, and there was what? There was calm. He creates calm. Immediately, it didn't take minutes or hours for the waves to die down. Immediately, the, the sea was like glass. Years ago, I, I was teaching this passage to my children. I don't even know if they, they remember this time, but, but we grabbed a bucket of water and we put a little boat in the, in the bucket. And, and uh, we, we created a storm. Uh, in this bucket. And we, we moved the bucket around and we splashed water and, and we got all the waves and the, the little boats going up and down. And then I invited my children to tell the, the bucket storm to stop. Right? And uh, it, it didn't stop. Uh, it, it just kept on going. Right? We, actually, we actually timed it. How long it took for the water to, to stop moving. 30 seconds, a minute. It took a while. And Jesus just instantly creates this calm. The wind is gone. Right? And, and not another drop of rain. 
And the sea is like glass. Matthew not only calls it a calm, Matthew's version calls it a great calm. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? A great calm, a, a mega calm. The, the great storm is now replaced by a great calm, or as one has put it, an eerie silence, as if a great hand had brushed away the wind and pressed down the sea. And once that calm has been created by our Lord, he turns from speaking to the storm to now addressing his apostles. As we see in verse 25, he said to them, Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Now that's, at least in in my first reading, interesting to me because there was storm hit and they went to Jesus, right? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Right? Trouble's here. Run to Jesus. Help Jesus. We need help here. That's exactly what they did. So why, why is he asking where's their faith? Well, when we finish the story, we will learn that they were not anticipating Jesus doing what he did. I would suggest that they, they woke Jesus in order to hand him a bucket. Hey, buddy, all hands on deck. We're, we're, we're a little bit frustrated that you're not helping out here. In fact, Mark tells us that they called out to him, teacher. Matthew tells us they called out to him, Lord. Luke tells us they called out to him, master, master. And I have no doubt they said it all in the chaos on that boat. They probably said more things. They are sailors after all. And they are uh, waking Jesus up. Uh, and, and they are calling out for him in this chaotic scene. And before we turn the apostles into cartoons and think, oh, there's the silly apostles again those foolish men, if I were there, my courage and and my sense would have persevered. Remember that these are experienced seamen and they are scared to death. If you were on that boat, you would be scared too. But they didn't wake Jesus in the midst of their trouble and say, we trust you. Will you please send away the storm? In fact, we know that they woke him and said, don't you care? We are dying. Don't you care? Why are you sleeping? Now is not the time to sleep. And Jesus looks at him and says, where, are, where is your faith? Haven't, haven't you seen enough? Haven't I showed you who I am by this point? To know me. In fact, I kind of wonder how they even woke him. After all, a storm could not. Did they shake him? Did they slap him? There's a great deal of irony, isn't there? That the storm cannot wake him, just their lack of faith in him. I don't know if you ever experienced that. I wonder, my friends, if you ever mimic the apostles when waves are crashing and the wind is howling and the boat is filling and you feel like God is sleeping. And you wonder, as the apostles did, though you may not verbalize it or you may, don't you care? Why don't you wake up and do something? And I think probably all of us have at times at least felt that temptation, haven't we? In the midst of our jobs or our relationships or our health, we we feel like we're sinking. And and in the meantime, God is sleeping and we lash out at God. And and here they are, they certainly don't have the faith in them that Christ is calling for. And it's noticed that he doesn't get up and he doesn't say to them, Oh guys, I'm sorry that I let you down, let me take care of this real quick. Right? And I, I shouldn't have been sleeping at all in the midst of this. He doesn't say that at all. He looks at them and says, Where is your faith? In other words, you know me, don't you? Right? You've seen my power, you've seen what I can do. You're not using your faith. Get it out! Use it! Think! Think about who I am in the midst of your hardships, in the midst of your troubles. Use it. In fact, I would suggest to you that the troubles that God brings us into 
our opportunities not just to use our faith, but to grow it. You notice, by the way, why they're in that boat? I don't know if you picked that up in verse 22. Whose idea was this after all? Jesus says, let us go. The disciples are in the storm because Jesus told them we need to go to the other side. Whether he knew it or not, he took them right into the middle of that thing. My friends, when trouble comes to you, please don't think that God is caught off guard. In fact, it might be the exact opposite. It may be he's the one who's taking you there. In fact, I read this story and I'm immediately um, confronted with with one of the, in my mind, one of the dumbest Christian sayings that I hear all the time, that the, the safest place to be is the center of God's will. I think that's their conclusion, isn't it? Right? If you loved us, you wouldn't let us be here. Do we not ever feel that way? If you loved us, if you were caring for us, we wouldn't be in this situation. Don't you hear that accusation? We are perishing. You hear what they're saying to him? If you cared, you would protect us from anything bad. You would protect us from these difficulties. You wouldn't let us sink. And Jesus gets up and I think his response ultimately is, I do love you and I will let you go through storms. In fact, sometimes I will even take you into them. Because what's more important to me than your comfort and your ease in life is the growth of your faith in me. You need to exercise that muscle of faith. Trials are designed by God to increase our faith. And you who have experienced them will testify to this, don't you? Yet you have learned things about God that you, in in hard times, than you never would have learned when things were easy. He's revealed himself in powerful and in unique ways in the midst of difficulty. Uh, Jesus obviously needed this storm, didn't he, to reveal this power. He couldn't have shown it in any other way. And I imagine if you were to ask the, the apostles months later, years later, tell me about that storm, they would have thanked God for that storm. They would have thanked God for the trouble and the adversity that they experienced. They would have thanked God for the times when things seem out of control because God has graciously given it to them that their faith may grow, that they may learn to trust him trust me where is your faith he says that's what he's calling for us to do to trust him please don't misread this passage by the way that god is promising to deliver you from trial that is not his promise here i listened to at least two or three sermons that at this point in the sermon that began to teach okay see what god is showing us that he's going to solve all of our problems he's going to solve our troubles I don't think that's the point of the story. I don't think there's any promise here that your relationships will be fixed or the medicine will work or the job offer is on its way. I don't think there's any promise here that the storm in which you experience right now will soon end. I don't know when the storm will end. Only God knows. But this I do know that in the middle of the storm, He will never leave you. You will never be alone. And if you today find yourself in trouble and trial, hardship and difficulty, know this, Christian, that your God is standing by your side. He may not wash it away. You may have it the rest of your life. But you will never face it alone. This is the faith we needed him. This is what he's calling for. Faith is confidence that no matter how hard the wind grows or how high the waves uh, bash us, there is one who is stronger than us all and he will see me through it. Faith is the confidence that if he is great enough to control the storm, certainly he must be great enough to have a reason to bring me into it. Certainly he must know what he's doing. So I wonder today, my friends here, are you facing trouble? Do you feel like you're drowning? you feel like you've lost hope? 
I in no way want to minimize the difficulty of what you are experiencing. I know some of your troubles, though not all, but I know some of you, my friends, are experiencing pain that I, I could only dream about. I have no idea what that is like. The hardship is great. But I invite you this morning, based upon God's Word, even if the trouble is severe, to learn to rest in the power and the love of Jesus Christ. If you would believe in His power, if you would have faith that He is with you and He will carry you through this, you can be calm in your storm. When His storm is raging out there, you can have calm in here. You can have peace in here, peace that surpasses all understanding. He can do that in your life if you would trust Him. John Wesley once encountered a situation that brought him to a point of questioning his faith. He was sailing after a failed mission in Georgia back to England, a failed missionary, if you will, and sailing back home. And there was a number of German uh, Christians on, on board, Moravians, and a great storm arose on that ship. Wesley was terrified and was immediately confronted with the fact that he was not prepared to die. The Moravians, meanwhile, showed no fear in the midst of the storm. They only began to sing. They gathered around in the middle of that boat and they began to sing hymns to God while the boat rocked and the waves crashed. One historian says, while the Moravians were singing, sea broke over the ship, splitting the mast into pieces. The water pouring down between the decks as if the great deep would swallow them up. The English were greatly terrified and screamed from fear while the Moravians were unmoved and calmly sung on. After the storm passed, Wesley approached one of them and asked them, aren't you afraid to die? His response to him was, I thank God, no. He realized they had something that he did not have. He did not have the peace that comes through faith in Christ. He would pursue that and one day find that back in England, again, through the ministry of the Moravians in his life. You can have that peace is what Jesus is saying. When the storm is outside, you may have peace inside. We had a men's retreat this weekend and uh, our good brother, I think the highlight for all of us uh, men was when uh, Dick Trapp came and, and spoke to us, a man who is uh, facing some trials of his own, if you know, in Dick's life. There's a storm going on in Dick's life. And he testified to us of his trust in God in the midst of that. In fact, he even read this wonderful passage, I believe, in Isaiah 43, where God says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you, for I am the Lord, your God, your Savior. He will never leave us. You can trust Him. When you learn that He loves you and He's trustworthy and He's in the boat with you, you can be calm in the midst of your storm. But lastly, consider Jesus' divinity with me. Verse 25 is interesting as we see that He addresses them, asking them where their faith was. But you notice their response to that question as we see there reading on. And they were afraid. And they marveled. They're afraid. They marveled, saying, who is this? That's the question. You see, you notice the storm's gone, but fear remains. 
Now that Christ has cast away the storm, the storm outside has disappeared. Now there's a storm raging on the inside as they ask, who is this one that can do such things? And I believe, as I've already mentioned, that this is where the story is driving us. It it is driving us all to ask this question. Who is he? How can he do this? How can one accomplish this great power? I think Luke wants us to ask that question. But I believe he provides an answer as we read on in verse 25, finishing the story, when we see, they say, who then is this that he commands even the wind, winds and the waters? And they obey him. I mean, who can do that? Right? When it's stormy outside, you carry an umbrella. Right? The greatest man bundles up. Jesus casts hurricanes aside with simply a word. He commands and storms must submit to his authority. He can do this because he is God himself. He is the second person of the triune God. He is God in the flesh. This is one of his many proofs as to who he is, that he stops hurricane force winds with a word. God alone can do that. Who can calm a raging sea instantly? Only God can do that. Other holy men may be able to heal or may be able to tell you the future or maybe even pray for rain or pray for it to stop. No one does what Jesus does because he alone is God. And the Jews knew this. This is why they're asking this question. This is why they are afraid. This is why they are terrified because scripture would teach them over and over again in the Old Testament that the only one that could calm the sea is God himself. Take, for instance, Psalm 65. God is praised as the one who stills the roaring seas. Or Psalm 89, you rule the ragings of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Or most striking, Psalm 107, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. That's what God does, the Bible tells us. And by the way, it wasn't simply the Jews who would believe this. If you look at any other ancient culture, they will almost universally understand the sea to be a symbol of chaos, a symbol of uncontrollable destruction. The sea is always seen as this, regardless of the religion, regardless of the ancient culture. And the Jews agreed with them that only God was able to manage the sea. This is a prerogative that only was allowed by God. He alone had power. In fact, I came across a wonderful story that there once was a great king by the name of Canute. He ruled over Denmark, England, Norway, and Sweden. It was called at that time the North Sea Empire, ruling from 985 to 1035. One historian has called him the most effective king in Anglo-Saxon history. His contemporaries thought he was great too. And they actually began to attribute to King Canute divine attributes. They began to border on worshiping him in his day. And so an ancient 12th century historian wrote about this man. He wrote about an event in King Canute's life. He writes get con- um, that he wrote, wrote, wrote that, that King Canute, we know the story from other historians, that he actually took his throne and he set it by the sh- seashore when the tide was coming in. And he he sat on that throne and King Canute looked at the sea and commanded it to stop. He commanded it not to rise. It is here where the historian completes this story, writing, Yet continuing to rise as usual, the tide dashed over his feet and legs without respect to his royal person. Then the king leapt backwards, saying, Let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings. 
For there is none worthy of the name, but he whom heaven and sea obey. He then promptly removed his crown, placed it upon a cross, never to wear it again, saying to the honor of God, the Almighty King. He was right. There is only one who has this power, and it is God. This is what God does. This is what we now see Jesus do. So let's get away with the nonsense that Jesus was a simply a good teacher, a moral man, a, an example for us, or even a prophet. No, he's none of those things, or he's all those things, but he's much more than those things. You notice, by the way, he doesn't roll up his sleeve. He doesn't go looking for his wand. He doesn't say the magic words. He doesn't even offer prayer. He doesn't call on a higher power because he is the higher power. He simply says, stop it. And creation obeys. The same one who spoke this world into existence now commands it to obey him. The apostles' reaction is that they were afraid. They're afraid because God is in their boat. Right? You would be afraid too if God was in your boat. Right? And they're, they're, the storm outside was a little bit scary. God in the boat, downright terrified. As they see that this man is far more than they perhaps originally thought. This is how the story ends. Who, who then is this? Have you answered that question? Who is he? Do you believe... What Scripture teaches us, that He is the divine Son of God who has come to this earth to save those who are perishing, to die on a cross as a substitute, paying the penalty for our sin and our rebellion, and three days later rose from the dead, that we might know God and be united with God and live forever with God, not because we are good people, but because we have trusted in Jesus. Those those of us who know this, will you grow in your trust of Him? I mean, I, I wonder if we read this and we're kind of tempted to shake our heads at the apostles thinking, come on, guys, when are you going to get it? You know, get them, Jesus. Let them have it. But I wonder if we're like them more than we care to admit. In fact, we have so much more truth than they, don't we? We know far more than they did at this time. And I believe, my friends, it is the truth that you have about Christ's crucifixion and Christ's resurrection that will empower you, that will provide for you the strength if you will trust in Him to be calm in the midst of difficulties and trials. In fact, I was reading this passage and studying, and I can't help but, but see the similarities with the story of Jonah. I don't know if you noticed them. In fact, I went back and read Jonah chapter 1, and I just outlined how similar these passages were. For instance, both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat... And See Number two, they were both in the middle of a raging storm. Number three, on both occasions their boats were sinking. Number four, both occasions had the crews panicking. Number five, both Jesus and Jonah were asleep in the middle of the storm. Number six, both were awakened by a frightened crew. Number seven, interestingly, both crews said, we are perishing. Use the exact same Greek word. Number eight, both uh, had a miraculous act of God to calm the sea. And, and number nine, both sailors were more afraid... Once the storm was calm, then when it ranged on. It's amazing how similar they are. There is yet but one difference. What Jonah said. Jonah, when he was wakened, didn't command the sea, certainly not. He said to them, you need to throw me over. He said to them, listen, if you're to survive, I must perish. I, I must die in order for you to live. When you think about it that way and you take a step back, you realize the stories may be more alike than we realize. 
In fact, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 12, I am the true Jonah. Isn't that interesting? Of course, he referred to the fact that three days Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so for three days the Son of Man shall be in the earth. But I do find it fascinating that, that this idea of being a true Jonah, I wonder if it means more than that, that Jesus would calm the storm, of course, in this event, and he would save his disciples at this event. But I'll tell you that one day he's going to calm all storms. He's going to still all waves. He's going to end all suffering. And you know how he's done, able to do that? It is because he himself was thrown into the storm. It was on the cross that he stepped into the ultimate storm of the judgment of God upon sin. And Jesus now says to all who would trust them, trust in him, throw me into the storm. Cast me overboard. If you are to survive, I must perish. If you are to live, I must die. It is how we live now forever because the death of Christ, He faced the storm of God's judgment for us. It is Tim Keller picking up on this says, He is the true Jonah who was consumed by the stormy sea of God's wrath as He hung on the cross. In doing so, Jesus calmed the only storm that could have truly sunk us and drowned us. The storm of God's wrath and judgment. He went down in the storm only to emerge three days later as the one who stilled the just and righteous wrath of God against sinners. If he, he concludes by saying, if he took care of that storm, the divine man can certainly be trusted to handle any other storm we may encounter. If he took care of that storm, The divine man can certainly be trusted to handle any other storm we encounter. My friends, this is where you will find power to face the troubles in your life with trust in God, with peace. It is through staring at the cross and the empty tomb, what He has done. It is understanding that He was thrown overboard. He was thrown uh, uh, under God's wrath. If you understand that he was thrown overboard, you'll never look at him again and say, why are you asleep? If you look at the cross, you'll never say to him, why don't you care? He's shown how much he cares. By going to that cross, by dying for us. And if he doesn't leave us in the storm of the wrath of God, you you can't certainly think that he will leave you in the small little storms that you face in this life. For the Bible tells us, if he who gave up his own son for us, how will he not therefore give us all things in Christ Jesus? If Christ was willing to go to the cross, will he not be with you in the midst of everything? You can trust him. You can lean upon him. Certainly something Horatio Spafford did. Forgive me, forgive me if this uh, seems a bit cliche to you. As I remind you, I'm preaching of this passage on the story of the man in 1871 who loved desperately his wife and delighted in his four daughters, enjoyed great wealth in Chicago and the real estate industry, and most importantly, knew and loved Jesus Christ. It was in April of 1871 that the great Chicago fire destroyed much of his property, consuming much of his wealth with it. Two years later, in 1873, he was overjoyed at the birth of his first son, a boy he always wanted. But soon, once again, he was cast into trouble when that boy died just two months later. It almost seemed that God was offering the Spaffords a much-needed rest 
from their accumulated sorrow over these years when he was given an invitation by Dwight Moody to travel to Europe to help him in an evangelistic crusade. And so he booked passage for his wife and himself and his four daughters, but right before he had to board the ship, he realized that he had some business he needed to take care of, and so he sent his family on ahead, and he would come as soon as he was able to. A week after his family set sail in November of 1873, Horatio Spafford woke to the news that the ship upon which his family sailed was struck by another in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and sunk in 12 minutes. About a week later, on December 1st in 1873, he received a telegram from his wife. It contained two words, saved alone. His four daughters had died in the middle of the Atlantic. He, of course, immediately booked passage to meet his wife over in Europe. And we are told that standing upon the deck as he sailed past the place where the tragedy had taken a number of weeks earlier, he was inspired to write these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. O Lord, haste the day. When my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back like a scroll, the trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. But even so, it is well with my soul. Our Father, may that be our prayer to you. May we, in the midst of whatever trial that you in your sometimes hard providence bring into our life, may we be able to call out in the middle of it, it is well with me because my Savior has died for me and He has risen from the dead for me and He is full of power and love for me. And that no matter what I shall encounter, it is, according to the Bible, light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory being prepared for those who believe in Jesus. And so let your people, let Hamilton Baptist Church testify to the goodness and power of Jesus by trusting in Him in the midst of storms. Will you do this even now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.